Welcome ZooAssemblyers! My name is Zuka Zalishvili and I'm the founder of ZooAssembly. ZooAssembly is an online podcast for the highest yield basic science and clinical knowledge tested on USMLE Step 1 and USMLE Step 2 CK. The information discussed in this podcast is intended only for educational purposes. It's not intended to prevent, diagnose, or to treat the medical conditions in real clinical practice, nor is it intended to reflect the policy and the guidelines of various health institutions. Simply put, we serve you to butcher your step exams. Please subscribe to our podcast, Facebook, Instagram pages, and the YouTube channels down below in the description of this episode so that we keep you tuned for the news at ZooSMLE. Now, let's start rolling. Today we are continuing the musculoskeletal series. And the first topic that we are going to discuss today is the common pediatric fractures. In this subsection of today's episode, we will talk about the green stick fracture and the torus fracture, also known as the buckle fracture. Now, it's very important to compare and contrast these two types of fractures. But before we do that, we need to we need to learn how to differentiate the tension side and the compression side of the bone trauma. So when we say the compression side of the bone or the concave side of the bone, we mean the side of the bone that is compressed by an external trauma. For example, if you put a stress on the bone, the the side of the bone that you put stress on is the compression side. And the opposite side of the compression side is the tension side or the convex side because the tension side is the part of the bone that undergoes maximal tension and physical stress, sharing stress during the external trauma. Okay, now that we have discussed what the tension and compression sides are, Let's now start talking about the green stick fracture. The way I always remember the green stick fracture is by the first aid mnemonic. The word green stick always reminds me of the green twig of the tree. So if you bend this green twig, then you will receive the incomplete tear or the fracture on the tension side right so i just want you to imagine the branch that you compress or bend and when you bend it then it will rupture or it will fracture on the opposite side or the tension side therefore in the green stick fracture the fracture occurs on the tension side However, the compression side remains intact. And please remember this characteristic because this is very important to distinguish the green stick fracture from the torus fracture. And again, the green stick fracture extends only 
partly through the width of the bone. It's not a complete fracture, it's only a partial fracture which extends through the cortex on the tension side and it may also extend uh, to the medulla as well. Okay, now let's move on to the torus fracture, also known as the buccal fracture. In this case, the mechanism is the application of the axial force to the immature bone. When you put stress on the immature bone, this can cause the fracture of the bone cortex on the same side that you put stress on. And if you remember from our discussion today, the side that you put the mechanical stress on is the a compression side or the concave side. Therefore, in torus fracture, it is the compression side or the concave side that gets fractured. But the tension side, which is the opposite side of the compression side, remains intact or solid. And there is the first aid mnemonic that I'd like to talk, uh, that I'd like to tell you. This is highlighting the letters TRS in the word Taurus. And the highlighted letters can make up the sentence, tension side remains solid. So T for tension, R for remains, and S for solid. Again, just to recap the whole concept of the green stick and the torus fracture, we just need to know that in green stick fracture, the fracture happens on the tension side, but the compression side is intact. In an absolute contrast, the torus fracture is characterized by the fracture on the compression side. However, the tension side remains intact. Okay, now that we've done discussing the common pediatric fractures, now we'll move on to talking about the achondroplasia. Before we dive deep into discussing achondroplasia, I'd like you to take a moment and think about the name. It's achondroplasia. A means no, right? It's the negative prefix. Chondro means cartilage. Plasia means proliferation. Therefore, the word achondroplasia means inability of the cartilage proliferation. And you will know what I mean once we go deep into this topic. Achondroplasia is the defect in the endochondral ossification. Let me remind you from our previous episode of the musculoskeletal series that there are two types of ossification happening in the embryonic period. This is endochondral ossification and the membranous ossification. The bones of the limbs, also known as the appendicular skeleton, is formed by the endochondral ossification, while the bones of the axial skeleton, for example, most of the skull bones, the clavicle, the sternum, are for formed by the membranous ossification. We know that the chondrocytes, the cells making the cartilage, participate in the endochondral ossification, not in the membranous ossification. 
Therefore, if achondroplasia is the inability of the chondrocyte proliferation, then it's obvious that the type of ossification that is, that is affected here is the endochondral ossification. Therefore, the bones that are affected in achondroplasia are the ones that come from the endochondral ossification. Again, could you please remind me which bones are formed by the endochondral ossification? Epso freaking lutely the bones of the limbs. This is why patients with achondroplasia have short limbs relative to the head size. And this is a very important distinguishing feature between achondroplasia and the Lerner's dwarfism. In Lerner's dwarfism, you have the patient who has a proportionately small limbs and a proportionately small head because Lauren dwarfism is the resistance to the growth factor right therefore all the bones and all the structures are affected to the same extent in contrast achondroplasia is characterized by the normal size of the head and the shortened limbs. This is because the bones of the head, most of the skull bones, are formed by the membranous ossification which is unaffected in achondroplasia. The gene and the protein that is disrupted in achondroplasia is the fibroblast growth factor receptor 3 or FGFR3. In disrupted I mean that there is constitutive activation of this gene and protein. So fibroblast growth factor 3 is constantly active and this constant activity of the FGFR3 inhibits chondrocyte proliferation. Uh, mostly achondroplasia is sporadic. In other words it, it's not inherited but it happens with de novo mutation. Sporadic achondroplasia is seen in more than 85% of cases. However, if achondroplasia is, is inherited, then it's autosomal dominant and it has the full penetrance. Okay, zoosamilures. I know that this is not a genetics episode. However, could you please tell me what the full penetrance means? Absolutely. That's absolutely true. Full penetrance means that all the people carrying the mutation express the phenotype. In contrast, the incomplete penetrance means that not all people carrying the particular mutation express the specific phenotype. Again, achondroplasia is characterized by the full penetrance. And another important genetic concept about achondroplasia is that homozygosity is lethal. In other words, if achondroplasia is inherited in an autosomal dominant manner, then the patient is always heterozygous for the FGFR3 
mutation. If the patient is homozygous, then it's lethal. The patient dies. And uh, the patient may die even before the birth. Achondroplasia is interestingly associated with increased paternal age. And lastly, achondroplasia is the most common cause of the short-limbed dwarfism. Okay, this was our discussion about the achondroplasia. Now we'll start talking about the osteoporosis. Osteoporosis is the loss of the trabecular bone and the cortical bone mass. In other words, both the trabecular or the spongy bone and the cortical bone become more porotic. The bone mineral density decreases in osteoporosis. However, the mineralization of the remaining bone is normal. And all the lead values, including calcium, phosphate, and usually vitamin D, are normal. It's a very important concept to remember. Although the patient loses the bone mass in osteoporosis, the remaining mass has normal mineralization and the lab values are also normal. The most common cause of osteoporosis is the increased age and decreased estrogen levels, especially in postmenopausal females. In the previous episode of Musculoskeletal Series, we talked about the estrogen effect on the bone. Could you please remember what the, what the estrogen does to the osteoblasts and osteoclasts? Exactly. Osteoblasts survive in, in um, uh, survive by the estrogen. The estrogen inhibits apoptosis in the osteoblasts. And the osteoblasts are the bone cells which build up the bone. In contrast, the estrogen stimulates apoptosis in the osteoclasts. Therefore, osteoclasts die with the help of the estrogen. And the osteoclasts are the cells which resorb the bone. In other words, if the, if the patient has the normal estrogen concentration in the blood, then there is the positive balance between bone formation and the bone resorption. And in this way, the patient maintains roughly the normal bone mineral density. But when the female patient undergoes menopause, then estrogen levels decrease significantly. And all the processes happening in the bone will reverse. In other words, the osteoblasts will start to die because there is not enough estrogen, and the osteoclasts will survive and they will resorb the bone. This is what causes osteoporosis and the postmenopausal uh, senior females. However, osteoporosis is not only due to an advanced age, 
uh, or the postmenopausal period with low estrogen. It can also be due to the different drugs, for example, corticosteroids. Let me tell you that corticosteroids, as well as endogenous cortisol, inhibit osteoblasts. Therefore, they inhibit the bone formation. Alcohol can also increase the risk for osteoporosis, but it's only the excessive alcohol use which can predispose the patient to osteoporosis. Anticonvulsants can be implicated in osteoporosis as well, particularly the phenytoin. This is because the phenytoin inhibits the vitamin D metabolism. If you remember, there are two very important hydroxylase enzymes in the liver and in the kidney which sequentially activate the vitamin D. In the liver, we have 25 hydroxylase which converts cholecalciferol to calcidiol and then in the kidney, specifically in the proximal convoluted tubule, we have the 1-alpha-hydroxylase, sorry, which converts the calcidiol to calcitriol, the only active form of the vitamin D. And vitamin D deficiency first causes the osteomalacia, and we'll definitely talk about osteomalacia today, and then if it's very severe, the vitamin D deficiency can certainly progress into the osteoporosis. Interestingly, the anticoagulants, especially heparin, are also implicated in the loss of the bone mass. Finally, the thyroid replacement therapy, or levothyroxine, can induce osteoporosis. And let me give you the reasoning behind this. The thyroid hormone, particularly T3, the active form of thyroid hormone, acts synergistically with growth hormone in the childhood. In other words, thyroid hormone in childhood helps with the bone growth. However, in the adulthood, the excessive thyroid hormone actually increases the bone resorption. And this is what we are talking about here. If uh, thyroid replacement therapy is, is excessive, or if the patient has uncontrolled hyperthyroidism, osteoporosis can occur to that particular patient. Okay, we talked about the postmenopausal osteoporosis, we talked about the drug-induced osteoporosis, and now we should also mention the fact that osteoporosis can be caused by the other medical conditions. For example, hyperparathyroidism. Could you please tell me the mechanism of how hyperparathyroidism can induce osteoporosis? I totally agree with you. Hyperparathyroidism means excessive parathyroid hormone. And when the parathyroid hormone is excessive, then it stimulates osteoclasts more than osteoblasts, which means that the bone gets resorbed. Multiple myeloma may also induce the osteoporosis. 
let me remind you that multiple myeloma is the cancer of the plasma cells and it originates in the bone marrow. If the myeloma cells expand and go beyond the bone marrow into the bone, they can create the osteolytic bone lesions diffusely throughout the body. An osteolytic lesion means that the uh, tumor cells induce osteoclasts and resorb the bone. The main mechanism by which almost all the osteolytic lesions induce the bone resorption is by secreting the cytokine called interleukin-1. Let me remind you from the immunology that interleukin-1 is also known as osteoclast activating factor. In other words, it activates the osteoclast and, and helps resorb the bone. Additionally, the malabsorption syndromes with the vitamin and mineral deficiencies can also induce osteoporosis. Let's take an example of the patient with celiac disease. Patients with celiac disease have steatorrhea because they cannot absorb enough fat and the fat-soluble vitamins. And one of the fat-soluble vitamins is vitamin D. We know that the normal, not high, but normal levels of vitamin D is necessary for the bone mineralization. If they don't have vitamin D and if they also have difficulty absorbing the calcium, first they may develop the osteomalacia and osteopenia, but then if it's too severe and if the patient is untreated, then osteopenia can progress to osteoporosis. And we'll talk about what the difference is between osteopenia and osteoporosis when we go to the discussion about the T-score. And finally, anorexia can also cause the osteoporosis. And there are two main reasons here. First, patients with anorexia nervosa have something called functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. Excessively low fat content or fat mass in the body shuts down the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. In other words, when the total fat mass decreases significantly in a person, this will lower the leptin levels secreted by the adipose tissue. The leptin, the normal leptin levels, is necessary for the pulsatile secretion of the GnRH from the preoptic nucleus of the hypothalamus. In anorexia nervosa patients, we have insufficient leptin, therefore GnRH secretion stops. If we don't have GnRH, then we don't have FSH and LH. And both of these gonadotropins are necessary for the estrogen production in the ovaries. Therefore, in anorexia nervosa, the patients have low estrogen levels. And the mechanism for osteoporosis will be the same that we discussed for postmenopausal ladies. But at the same time, anorexic patients excessively limit their caloric intake, and they may be deficient in both vitamin D and calcium. Okay, now that we've talked about the causes of the osteoporosis, let's talk about how we diagnose osteoporosis. The diagnosis 
of osteoporosis can happen either by measuring the bone mineral density or by the history of the fragility fracture. Let's first talk about the measurement of the bone mineral density. The bone mineral density is measured by a specific technique which is called a DEXA, DEXA or DEXA scan. DEXA is an abbreviation which stands for Dual Energy X-ray Absorptiometry. This is the specific device which measures the bone mineral density. In other words, how much bone, how much mineralized bone there is in the unit of volume. And the DEXA scan measures the bone mineral density, particularly at the lumbar spine, because that's a very common place for osteoporotic fractures. It also measures the bone mineral density at the total hip and in the femoral neck. The DEXA scan then gives out the T-score. The T-score shows us how severe the bone loss is in the patient. And the general rule of thumb is that the lower the T-score, the greater the bone loss is in the patient. If you're interested in how the T-score is calculated, then it has the formula of bone mineral density of the patient minus bone mineral density of control divided by the standard deviation. I know this formula is a little bit complicated, but let me explain what the formula means in words. We compare the bone mineral density of our patient with the bone mineral density of the gender matched control at the age of 30 years. And we take a 30 year old control because 30 years is the age when the bone mineral density reaches its maximum. And then we simply observe how much difference there is between the patient's bone mineral density and the maximal peak bone mineral density that the person can achieve in her or his lifetime. The T-score less than or equal to minus 2.5 confirms the osteoporosis. This value means that the bone mineral density of the patient is very, very low compared to that of the gender-matched control. Therefore, the patient has osteoporosis. Now, if the T-score is between minus 1 and minus 2.4, then the patient is diagnosed with osteopenia. Osteopenia can be seen as the mild osteoporosis. This is when the bone mineral density is lower compared to the bone mineral density of a 30-year-old person. However, it's not as low to be considered osteoporosis. Right. Now let's define what the fragility factor is. If you remember, we said that osteoporosis can either be diagnosed by measuring the bone mineral density with the DEXA scan or by the patient's history of the fragility fracture. Now fragility fracture is the fracture from the fall from the standing height. 
if the patient stands and then suddenly falls for some reason and fractures, let's say, the hip, that will be the fragility fracture. Idea here is that the person should not get the fracture if he or she falls from the standing height or from her or his height. And another example of the fragility fracture is the fracture with the minimal trauma. And this fracture usually happens either at the hip, as we already mentioned, or at the vertebra. It's a very, very high yield for you to know that all the females, at least 65 years old, need to get one-time DEXA scan to determine the bone mineral density and to screen for osteoporosis. But let me tell you one high yield thing. Even if the patient is less than 65 years old, but has the different risk factors for osteoporosis, let's say the patient takes chronically the glucocorticoids, or let's say the patient has hyperthyroidism, hyperparathyroidism, malabsorption syndromes, anorexia nervosa. In that case, you will screen this patient for osteoporosis even before 65 years of age. Right, now, how do we prevent the osteoporosis from happening? Well, first, the patient should be advised to perform the regular weight-bearing exercises. In other words, the resistance exercises or the weight-bearing exercises are the best way to prevent osteoporosis. The idea here is that the more stress you put on the bone and the osteoblasts, the more you activate the osteoblasts and you build up the new bone. And it's very high yield to remember that it's the weight-bearing exercise which prevents osteoporosis. Let's, for example, swimming does not prevent osteoporosis because swimming is not the weight-bearing exercise. You don't put the uh, stress and you don't put the mechanical weight on your bones when you, when you swim. In addition to the weight-bearing exercises, the regular intake of the calcium and vitamin D can also prevent or slow the progression of osteoporosis. Now, in terms of treatment, the first-line treatment option is the bisphosphonates. The drugs that end with dronic acid, that's the suffix, or dronate, let's say risedronate or pamidronate or uh, alidronic acid. We'll definitely talk about the mechanism of action and the side effects of all of these drugs when we move on to the musculoskeletal pharmacology. But for this moment, I just want you to know the different treatment options for osteoporosis. Other than bisphosphonates, we can also use the teriparatide. Teriparatide is the analog of the parathyroid hormone. And if you give the teriparatide to the patient in pulses, then you activate osteoblasts and you build up the bone. But if you give teriparatide to the patient continuously, then this will result in more bone loss. It just mimics the PTH physiology. If you have chronically elevated PTH, then it activates osteoclasts more than osteoblasts, and you get the bone resorption. 
Okay, more on teriparatide and the musculoskeletal pharmacology. The selective estrogen receptor modulators can also be used for osteoporosis. These are the drugs shortly named CIRMs. And the most common CIRM used for the treatment of osteoporosis is the roloxifene. And roloxifene is the drug which activates the estrogen receptor in the bone and it builds up the bone. Very rarely, we can also use the calcitonin. Calcitonin is another hormone, and this hormone inhibits the osteoclast-mediated bone resorption. Finally, denosumab can also be used for osteoporosis. Denosumab is the monoclonal antibody which is directed against the rank ligand. Could you please remind me what the normal function of rank ligand is in bone? That's totally right. Rank ligand present on the osteoblasts activates the rank receptor on the osteoclasts. And in this way, the rank ligand can activate the existing osteoclasts and it can also induce the differentiation of the macrophages into the osteoclast. And in this way, rank ligand helps with the bone resorption. Now, if you have the monoclonal antibody that blocks rank ligand from binding to the rank receptor, then you inhibit the osteoclast activation. This is what the denosumab does. And if you remember, there also is an endogenous protein in the bone named osteoprotegrin which mimics the action of denosumab. In fact, denosumab was created in, in the, with the similarity to the, with the similarity, sorry, with the similarity to the osteoprotegrin because osteoprotegrin works just like the denosumab. Right. The osteoporosis can lead to compression fractures, and these compression fractures mostly happen in the vertebra. This is because the vertebra, vertebral column, uh, carries the weight of the patient, and there is constant compression of the vertebral bodies. Then if the bone is too weak, and if the bone is affected by osteoporosis, then the vertebral bodies can no longer hold this weight and they can fracture. This is called vertebral compression fracture. And the vertebral compression fracture has the different subtypes. We might have the wedge-shaped fracture, which means that the anterior part of the vertebral bodies are narrower than the posterior part. There may also be the butterfly fracture, which means that the central part of the vertebra is, uh, sorry, central part of the vertebral body is fractured and compressed and it gives out the appearance of the butterfly in the sagittal MRI. The vertebral compression fracture can be acute or chronic. Acute vertebral compression fracture is characterized by acute back pain. It starts in a second and it's characterized by severe pain and at the same time, it may cause the loss of height and kyphosis. You can imagine that if the vertebral bodies get thinner, 
and if they get fractured, then the total height of the person will low, lower. And um, also there might be kyphosis, which is excessive uh, forward bending of the, of the person. The vertebral compression fracture, as we already mentioned, can also be the chronic. And chronic vertebral compression fracture is not characterized by the acute back pain. It has the chronic dull pain because there is the chronic process of the bone cracks and fractures in the vertebral bodies. And the loss of height happens uh, chronically as well. The other types of fragility fracture seen in the osteoporosis is the fracture of the femoral neck, which is one of the most common fractures in osteoporosis. And also there may be the fracture of the distal radius while falling on an outstretched hand. Do you remember what's his, what the name is for this distal radial fracture? You are amazing. It's called the Colley's fracture. Colley's fracture is the distal radial fracture while the patient falls on an outstretched hand. And it gives out this specific dinophoric deformity where the distal radial part is displaced upwards or dorsally. And this is what makes it look like the dinner fork. Okay, we have done discussing the osteoporosis. Now we'll move on to osteopetrosis. Osteopetrosis is the marble bone or the stone bone. In this disease, the osteoclasts cannot resorb the bone. This is the failure of the normal bone resorption. The main reason for the defective osteoclasts in osteoporosis is the defective enzyme inside the osteoclasts. Do you know what the name of this enzyme is? A little louder, please. Absolutely, it's carbonic anhydrase 2. Carbonic anhydrase is an enzyme which converts the which converts the carbon dioxide and water into carbonic acid and vice versa. It's a reversible enzyme. Uh, and uh, carbonic acid then spontaneously degrades into the hydrogen ion and the bicarbonate ion. The bicarbonate stays inside the osteoclast while the hydrogen ion goes into the bone matrix. In other words, when the hydrogen ion goes into the bone matrix, this acidifies the bone matrix. And acidification results in calcium displacement from the bone matrix proteins. This is how osteoclasts demineralize the bone, which is the first step for bone resorption. Now, if the carbonic anhydrase 2 does not work normally, it means that the bone matrix can no longer be acidified. If there is insufficient acidity, then the calcium can no longer be displaced from the bone matrix proteins. And in other words, the bone remains unresorbed. And then osteoblasts don't stop working. They deposit and deposit and deposit more bone. This is why the bones in osteopetrosis are very dense and very thick. Here's a very interesting thing to say. 
Although the bones are very dense and thick in patients with osteopetrosis, these bones are very prone to fracture. A common misperception is that the denser or the thicker the bone is, the stronger it is. But this is absolutely wrong. The strength of the bone is determined by the balance between osteoblasts and osteoclasts. In other words, is the bone remodeling mediated by both osteoblasts and osteoclasts that confers the resistance to fracture? If we have only one component of this process, let's say if you have only osteoblasts which are functioning but you have dysfunctional osteoclasts, then yes, you will have denser bones, but they will still be weak and they will still be prone to fracture. The osteopetrosis has very severe and significant consequences in terms of the bone marrow. We know that the bone marrow is located in the medullary space, which is in the center of the long bones mostly. But if osteopetrosis results in very thick and dense bones, it means that the bone fills up this bone, bone marrow space. Therefore, there is insufficient bone marrow space and there is insufficient hematopoiesis. In other words, all the cell lines will be low. We will have pancytopenia, which involves anemia, leukopenia, and thrombocytopenia. At the same time, when the bone marrow can no longer produce enough cells, then the body uh, refers to the extramedullary hematopoiesis. In other words, the hematopoiesis or the blood cell production starts in the other organs and two most commonly involved organs in the extramedullary hematopoiesis are could you please finish my sentence exactly liver and spleen and now you can automatically say that the patients with severe osteopetrosis can have hepatosplenomegaly because they take on the job of making the blood cells. Another high yield consequence of osteopetrosis is the cranial nerve impingement and the cranial nerve pulses. This is because the different foramina which come out from the skull are narrowed down by the thick bone. And these are the foramina which contain the cranial nerves. Now, if they are narrower than normal, they impinge on the cranial nerves so we can get the cranial nerve palsies. Let's say you, you may have the Bell's palsy, you may have involvement of potentially any cranial nerve. When you perform the x-ray on the patient with osteopetrosis, you will see diffuse symmetric sclerosis. In other words, the opaque signal will be very prominent. The bones will be very white because their density is increased. Okay, now I'd like to talk to you about the last point in, on osteopetrosis and that's the treatment. But before I start explaining this, I want to ask you, how do you guys think osteopetrosis is treated?
are you saying bone marrow transplant? If you are, you get it. You got it. That's bone marrow transplant. But now let's explain why osteopetrosis is treated with the bone marrow transplant. If you remember, everything in osteopetrosis starts with dysfunctional osteoclasts. And osteoclasts are derived from... Please finish my sentence. Right, they are derived from monocytes. The monocytes are made in the bone marrow. Therefore, if we transplant the bone marrow to the patient with osteopetrosis, they will produce the normal monocytes in their bone marrow, and the normal monocytes will transform into the normal osteoclasts so that the bones will start to get resorbed. This is how we treat osteopetrosis. Okay. Now that we've done discussing osteoporosis, oh, sorry, osteopetrosis, now we'll move on to osteomalacia and rickets. Both osteomalacia and the rickets are caused by defective mineralization of the bone. And both of these conditions are caused by vitamin D deficiency. Now, osteomalacia which literally means soft bones, and the rickets are different in their clinical presentation. And this difference is explained by the patient's age. If the, patient, if the adult patient develops vitamin D deficiency, then she or he is likely to develop osteomalacia, but not rickets. And in contrast, if the child develops vitamin D deficiency, then he or she is more likely to develop rickets rather than osteomalacia. However, osteomalacia can still occur in children. Now, you may ask me what the difference is. Well, the difference between osteomalacia and rickets is the part of the bone that is insufficiently mineralized. In osteomalacia, it is the osteoid or the initial bone matrix that is not mineralized. But in case of the rickets, it's the cartilaginous growth plates which do not get mineralized. As we all know, the long bones have the cartilaginous growth plates which allow for the, um, for the growth of the bones in length. And at some point in life, usually in the early 20s or the mid-20s, the growth plates are fully ossified, and therefore the bones can no longer grow in height. And so this is why adult patients cannot have the growth plates affected by vitamin D deficiency. It's the osteoid which does not get mineralized in case of vitamin D deficiency. Okay, now let's talk about the clinical and the imaging features of osteomalacia and the rickets. The x-ray in the patient with osteomalacia will show the loser zones. These loser zones are also known as the pseudo-fractures. The pseudo-fracture is the part of the bone which looks darker, um, but it's not fractured. Whenever we see a dark crack 
across the bone, this may suggest the fracture because at that particular place, the bone density is decreased. But in case of osteomalacia, this can be the characteristic finding on the x-ray. It's called a pseudo-fracture. It's not a fracture, however, it looks like a fracture on the x-ray. It looks darker compared to the white bone. And this is because osteoid does not contain calcium. That's why it's dark. So it has low mineral density. In case of the rickets, the x-ray can show epiphyseal widening and metaphyseal cupping or fraying. The idea here is that when the child grows and gains more mass, this mass puts the mechanical stress on the bones and it can deform the bone which has defectively mineralized growth plate. This is why we have the epiphyseal widening. They get flatter when the mass puts the stress on them. And we can also get the metaphyseal cupping because the epiphyses compresses down the metaphysis. The children with rickets also have very classic clinical features. First, they have pathologic bowel legs, which is known as the genuvarum. This is when the distance between the knees are, uh, are long, is long, and uh, therefore the legs look like the bowel legs. It's very high yield to remember that bowel legs are normal in the children up until the age of two years. But if it persists beyond the age of two years, or if it is excessive in a child with insufficient sun exposure, then we can think of the rickets due to vitamin D deficiency. This is because the main source of vitamin D is our skin, but in order for the skin to produce vitamin D, we need the UV light, which helps with the vitamin D production in the skin. In addition, the children with rickets can also have something called rachitic rosary. Rachitic rosary is the bead-like structures on both sides at the costochondral junctions. Costochondral junction is the place where the uh, ribs meet the costal cartilages. And the osteoblasts are hyperactive in, in rickets and osteomalacia because bone is poorly mineralized and osteoblasts try to deposit more and more osteoid to maintain the normal strength of the bone. Although they never reach the normal strength of the mineralized bone, they still deposit and deposit and deposit more and more osteoid. And the osteoid overgrowth at the costochondral junction is what causes the rachitic rosary. And finally, the patients with rickets also have something called craniotapes, which literally means soft skull. Their skull is soft because the skull bone is poorly mineralized as well. It, it's not hard. It's not hard as bone, but it's like, mm, I don't know how to explain, but it's, it's like a ball that you can change the shape of. Let's talk about the laboratory findings of the osteomalation rickets.
And by this, we'll also review the pathophysiology. Again, as we mentioned, the inciting event for osteomalacia and rickets is the vitamin D deficiency. So we have low vitamin D. Now, could you please remember what the so what, what vitamin D does to the serum calcium and phosphate? Exactly. It raises both calcium and phosphate because vitamin D stimulates the GI absorption of both calcium and phosphate. So if we have low vitamin D, we have low serum calcium. The low serum calcium is the strongest stimulator for PTH secretion. In other words, the patients with osteomalacia and rickets have the secondary hyperparathyroidism. It's secondary to low calcium. And PTH, reminding you from the endocrine physiology, dumps the phosphate in the urine. It blocks the phosphate reabsorption from the proximal convoluted tubule, and this will further lower the phosphate levels in the patient with osteomalacia and rickets. Okay, so to summarize, the patients with osteomalacia and rickets will have low calcium, low phosphate, low vitamin D, and increased PTH. And as a side note, if you want to check the body's storage of the vitamin D, you need to check calcidiol in the, in the blood. Not calcitriol, calcidiol, which is 25-hydroxy-D3. That's the storage form for the vitamin D. And the last point about these two conditions is that since osteoblasts are hyperactive, trying to deposit as much osteoid as they can, alkaline phosphatase is commonly elevated in this condition. Alkaline phosphatase is an enzyme that is that can be produced by the osteoblasts. And if bone type alkaline phosphatase, alkaline phosphatase is high, it means that osteoblasts are hyperactive. Okay, now we'll move on to another condition known as osteitis deformans. It's also known as the Paget disease of the bone. The Paget disease of the bone is the disorder of the bone remodeling. Additionally, it's a localized disorder. It does not happen diffusely throughout the skeleton, but it happens in patches or in different uh, places. To say it very simply, the osteitis deformance is caused by crazy osteoclasts. These are the osteoclasts which get out of control and they start resorbing the bone. Let's remind ourselves that osteoclasts are controlled and managed by osteoblasts. Because osteoblasts contain the rank ligand, which, after binding to rank receptor and osteoclasts, activates those osteoclasts. But in case of osteitis deformans, the osteoclasts get out of the control of the osteoblasts and they start resorbing the bone. This is why the first stage of the Paget disease of the bone is called the lytic stage, because the osteoclasts perform the lysis or the breakdown of the bone. But after this, the osteoblasts detect, detect the excessive activity of the osteoclasts 
And this is why the osteoblasts kick in. This is why the second stage of the Paget disease of the bone is called the mixed stage. It's mixed because in this stage, both osteoclasts and osteoblasts work together. When I say work together, I don't mean that they do the same thing. Osteoclasts still resorb the bone and osteoblasts build up the bone trying to resist what the osteoclasts are doing. Now, the third stage is the sclerotic stage. In this stage, the osteoblasts stay active, but the osteoclasts stop working. The osteoblasts try to correct what the osteoclasts have done. They try to deposit as much osteoid and bone as possible, and this is what makes the bones sclerotic. And the final stage is quiescent stage, when the osteoblasts also stop working, so we have minimal activity of both osteoblasts and osteoclasts. This was the chronology of the Paget disease of the bone. Now let's talk about what happens in terms of the labs. Very, very importantly, the Paget disease of the bone is characterized by the labs which are normal, except for increased alkaline phosphatase. Everything is normal, including serum calcium, phosphorus, and PTH, but the alkaline phosphatase is increased. The idea here is that overactive osteoblasts produce the bone-type alkaline phosphatase. And then if you uh, examine the bone of the patient with osteitis deformance under the microscope, you will see that the patient will have the mosaic pattern of the bone. Mosaic pattern means that there is the uh, juxtaposition and irregular organization of the woven and the lamellar bone. There are two extremely high yield consequences of the Paget disease of the bone. First, the Paget disease of the bone can result in high output heart failure. When we receive these uh, mosaic patterns inside the bone, uh, the abnormal capillaries form among the osteocytes and, among, and within that mosaic pattern, and these capillaries further connect the arterioles and the venules, which means that the blood going through the bone reaches the heart faster than normal. This will cause the volume overload of the heart, and at first we'll have high output heart failure. Again, this is because the blood flow to the heart through the bones is faster than usual due to those arteriovenous shunts inside the mosaic bone. And the second consequence is the risk, increased risk of osteosarcoma. Osteosarcoma, and we'll talk about this today, is the malignant tumor of the osteoblasts. As we already discussed, this condition, Paget disease of the bone, is characterized by overactive osteoblasts. So if osteoblasts are proliferating, then there, there is a chance of malignant transformation and osteosarcoma. Very commonly, the patients with Paget disease of the bone complain that their head size increases, and this is because the skull is thickened. At the same time, hearing loss is very common because, just like in osteopetrosis, the foramina coming out from the skull bones are narrowed down, and let's say if internal auditory meatus is narrowed, then the patient can have sensory neural hearing loss because this internal auditory meatus contains both cranial nerve 7, or facial nerve, and cranial nerve 8. 
right? Uh, okay. And finally, the treatment for osteitis deformans is the bisphosphonates. This is because bisphosphonates inhibit the osteoclastic activity. If you remember, we said that the primary inciting event in pedo disease of the bone is excessive activity of the osteoclasts. So if we shut the osteoclasts down, then osteitis deformans won't progress to the other stages. Right, now that we've talked about the pedo disease of the bone, let's move on to the avascular necrosis of the bone. Avascular necrosis of the bone, as the name implies, is the necrosis or infarction of both the bone and the bone marrow. The avascular necrosis is typically very painful, and the most common site for it to happen is the femoral head. Now, before we go any further and discuss the different causes of the avascular necrosis of the bone, we should discuss the blood supply of the femoral neck and femoral head, because this is how we can understand why the femoral head is particularly susceptible to the avascular necrosis. Okay, immediately above the lesser and greater trochanters, at the base of the femoral neck, we have two arteries. We have lateral femoral circumflex artery, which is also known as the anterior femoral circumflex artery. And then we have medial femoral circumflex artery, also known as the posterior femoral circumflex artery. Now, the medial femoral circumflex artery gives rise to the retinacular arteries. The retinacular arteries are the ones which go along the femoral neck and they supply the femoral head. Another source of blood supply for the femoral head is the branch of obturator artery, which supplies the most distal upper tip of the femoral head. And then the middle part of the femoral head is the watershed zone between the obturator artery and the retinacular arteries. If you damage the retinacular arteries, then we will have infarction at that watershed zone because it is farthest from the blood supply. And additionally, the branch of the obturator artery does not provide enough blood supply that it can maintain the healthy femoral head without the retinacular arteries. What I'm trying to say is that retinacular arteries establish the main blood supply for the femoral head. And anything that can damage the retinacular arteries coming from the medial circumflex femoral artery can cause the avascular necrosis of the femoral head. There are many, many different conditions that can induce the avascular necrosis of the bone. And the way I always remember these conditions is by the first aid mnemonic. It always proves helpful for me. The, the mnemonic sounds like casts bend legs. And each letter in these words denotes the cause of the avascular necrosis. The first C stands for corticosteroids. The chronic use of glucocorticoids can induce the avascular necrosis. The A stands for chronic alcohol overuse. 
The S stands for sickle cell disease. Sickle cell disease can induce the avascular necrosis because the sickled RBCs can lodge either in the medial circumflex femoral artery or in the retinacular arteries. But wherever they lodge, they will decrease the perfusion to the femoral head. Now T stands for trauma. If the patient gets the femoral neck fracture, this will disrupt the retinacular arteries traveling along the femoral neck. And again, if retinacular arteries are disrupted, then the major blood supply to the femoral head is also disrupted. The second S in the mnemonic stands for SLE, or lupus. Lupus is also known to cause the avascular necrosis. The word bend stands for bends. The bends is a nickname for a condition called Caisson's disease or decompression sickness. Could you please remind me what the Caisson's disease is? I totally agree. The Caisson's disease is the embolus of the nitrogen bubbles, which can happen with uh, descending to a very significant depth, for example, scuba diving, and then rapidly ascending back. This will cause the this will cause the nitrogen bubbles to precipitate in the blood vessels, and then. Those bubbles can form the air embolus, which can lodge uh, mostly in the musculoskeletal system. And this can definitely cause the avascular necrosis if the nitrogen bubble embolus lodges into the retinacular arteries. The letters LE stand for leg calvi perthes disease. If you remember, the LCP or leg calvi perthes disease is an idiopathic avascular necrosis or osteonecrosis of the femoral neck in children at the age of approximately 5 to 7. G stands for Gaucher disease. Do you remember what the Gaucher disease is? Right. It's a lysosomal storage disease. In fact, it's the most common lysosomal storage disease caused by deficiency of beta-glucosidase or glucoserepresidase. And uh, Gaucher disease severely affects the musculoskeletal system. And finally, the final letter S stands for slipped capital femoral epiphysis or skiffy. We have also discussed skiffy, and let me remind you that skiffy is when the femoral head, specifically the epiphysis, slips across the femoral neck. And on the x-ray, it looks like the ice cream slipping of a cone. If the femoral head slips across the femoral neck, this will also disrupt the retinacular arteries, predisposing the patient to avascular necrosis of the bone. Okay, so this was the discussion about the avascular necrosis of the bone. Let me tell you about Match a Resident. Match a Resident is an organization that helps residency applicants find the perfect residency programs for them. Although it's particularly helpful for international medical graduates, anyone is welcome to Match a Resident. 
It is trusted by over 150,000 international medical graduates for over 17 years. Metro Resident gives you detailed information about each program's requirements, such as visa status, USMLE scores, and more. Metro Resident annually updates these requirements through in-person conversation with program coordinators every year to give you the newest information possible. This way, you invest your time and money in the residency programs where you have high chances of matching. To find out more about this amazing organization, check out the website www.mitcheresident.com. Mitch a Resident is the path to your success. Now we'll talk about the lab values of the bone disorders that we discussed today. First, let's start with the osteoporosis. Do you remember what we said about the labs of the osteoporotic person? Exactly. In osteoporosis, everything is normal. And in everything, I mean the serum calcium, serum phosphate, PTH, and alkaline phosphatase. All of these four lab values are normal. And the person just has the decreased bone mass. Now, in case of osteopetrosis, everything is also normal, just like in osteoporosis. The only thing that may be deranged is the serum calcium levels, which may be low. And it really makes sense if you think about it. As we already mentioned, osteopetrosis is characterized by unbalanced osteoblast activity. Osteoclasts are non-functional, they cannot demineralize and resorb the bone, so osteoblasts deposit and deposit and deposit bone. When osteoblasts deposit the osteoid, which is the primary non-mineralized bone matrix, the osteoid needs calcium in order to get mineralized. So when osteoid draws the calcium from the blood, this can drop the serum calcium levels. But this really happens in a very, very severe osteopetrosis. Now, in case of Paget disease of the bone, could you please remind me which is the only lab value that's elevated here? If you are saying alkaline phosphatase, you are absolutely right. Alkaline phosphatase is high, and specifically it's the bone type alkaline phosphatase because the osteoblasts are active. Otherwise, serum calcium, phosphate, and PTH are all normal. And again, as we already mentioned, the Paget disease of the bone is characterized by the mosaic bone architecture. Let's move on to osteitis fibrosa cystica. I know that we have not discussed osteitis fibrosa cystica in detail because we'll talk about this disease extensively in the endocrine pathology, but still, let's briefly review this condition. Osteitis fibrosa cystica is the bone disease caused by hyperparathyroidism, regardless of whether it's primary or secondary hyperparathyroidism. Let's break down the name. It's osteitis fibrosa cystica. So it's the bone disease with fibrosis and cyst formation. The idea here is that excessive PTH stimulates osteoclasts, which resorb the bone. And when they resorb the bone, they leave those uh, round or cystic 
holes inside the bones, and those holes are occupied by the macrophages and the RBCs. The iron inside the RBCs is finally converted to the hemosiderin, and hemosiderin is then phagocytosed by the macrophages. What I'm trying to say is that those cystic hollow structures in the bone are filled up with hemosiderin-laden macrophages, and hemosiderin is brown. This is why we call these lesions the brown tumors. They are not tumors per se, however, they are still brown due to hemosiderin-laden macrophages. At the same time, Osteitis fibrosocystica is characterized by the thinning of the subperiosteal cortical bone. As we already mentioned, Osteitis fibrosocystica can occur with both primary and secondary hyperparathyroidism. Now, we'll have to discuss the lab values of primary and secondary hyperparathyroidism separately. In case of primary hyperparathyroidism, the initial primary event is excessive PTH secretion. So, PTH will be high. Now, we know that the PTH raises the serum calcium level by resorbing calcium from the bone and by increasing the calcium reabsorption from the early distal convoluted tubule of the kidney. Therefore, in primary hyperparathyroidism, the serum calcium will be high. Additionally, we also mentioned today that PTH dumps the phosphate by blocking the phosphate reabsorption from the proximal convoluted tubule. In other words, the primary hyperparathyroidism causes phosphaturia and low phosphate levels. And finally, when we have increased PTH, it stimulates osteoblasts, and whenever osteoblasts are active, they release the bone-type alkaline phosphatase. Therefore, in patients with hyperparathyroidism, the alkaline phosphatase will be high. To summarize the labs of the primary hyperparathyroidism, here we have it. High PTH, high calcium, low phosphate, and high alkaline phosphatase. Now, in case of secondary hyperparathyroidism, again, we have high PTH, but it's not primary, so it's not the parathyroid disease like parathyroid adenoma or hyperplasia or carcinoma. In secondary hyperparathyroidism, the problem is the disease of some other organ system, most, most commonly the kidney. Most commonly, the secondary hyperparathyroidism is a compensation for the chronic kidney disease. When the patient has chronic kidney disease, the patient has high phosphate because kidney can no longer excrete the phosphate, and at the same time, the patient has low calcium. The idea here is that first, the patient can no longer reabsorb the calcium in the distal convoluted tubule, but at the same time, if the patient has chronic kidney disease, then the patient can no longer produce the active vitamin D or calcitriol by the kidneys, and calcitriol absorbs the calcium from the GI tract. So, absence of the active vitamin D is another reason for why the patients with CKD may have the low calcium. Okay, we said that patients with secondary hyperparathyroidism have low calcium, high phosphate, and of course they have the high PTH. And if they have high PTH, they of course have the high alkaline phosphatase due to overactivation of the osteoblasts. Okay. And now we need to talk about the osteomalacia and the rickets and their lab reports. And it will be just the revision because we have already talked about it. The primary event 
in both osteomalacia and rickets is the vitamin D deficiency. And as we know, vitamin D absorbs both calcium and phosphate from the GI tract. Insufficient vitamin D means insufficient calcium and phosphate absorption. Therefore, both serum calcium and serum phosphate will be low. Here's the thing. The calcium is the main regulator for the PTH secretion. And low calcium stimulates PTH secretion, but low phosphate inhibits PTH secretion. Now I have a question. What will be the PTH level in the osteomalacia and rickets? Will it be high or will it be low? I really, really hope that you're saying that it will be high. Again, we said that the main regulator of the PTA secretion is the serum calcium level, not the phosphate level and not the calcitriol level, although they also affect the PTA secretion. Therefore, patients with osteomalacia rickets have low calcium, low phosphate, high PTH, and therefore high alkaline phosphatase. And finally, let's talk about the hypervitaminosis D. We have not talked about the hypervitaminosis D in this episode, but let me tell you one thing. We mentioned that in order for the bones to get mineralized sufficiently, we need to have the normal vitamin D levels in the body. Not high, but normal. The reason I'm stressing this point is that excessive vitamin D actually helps with bone resorption rather than mineralization. And hypervitaminosis D is exactly what it sounds like. It's the excessive vitamin D. So if we have high vitamin D, then we have excessive calcium and phosphate absorption from the GI tract. Therefore, we have high calcium and high phosphate. Now, again, I have a question. Could you please tell me what will happen to the PTH levels in hypervitaminosis D? Will it increase or will it decrease? Epso-freaking-lutely. It will decrease. The reason for this is, again, the fact that serum calcium is high in hypervitaminosis D, and the serum calcium levels is the primary regulator for the PTH secretion. In hypervitaminosis D, the alkaline phosphatase will be normal. The hypervitaminosis D can certainly occur by over-supplementation of vitamin D, but at the same time, it can also happen in patients with granulomatous diseases like sarcoidosis. If you could tell me why granulomatous diseases can lead to hypervitaminosis D, that will be just drop the mic. Wow. Do you know the reason? Exactly. Exactly. The granulomas contain the epithelioid histiocytes, which are modified macrophages. And the epithelioid histiocytes express the enzyme 1-alpha-hydroxylase. This is the same enzyme that's normally present in the proximal convoluted tubule and is responsible for converting the calcidiol to calcitriol. Therefore, in patients with granulomatous diseases, we have excessive 1-alpha-hydroxylase, and therefore we have excessive conversion of inactive vitamin D to the active form of the vitamin D. Hence, we have hypervitaminosis D. Okay, we have finished talking about the lab values in bone disorders, 
and the last topic of our today's episode will be the primary bone tumors. The discussion about the primary bone tumors will be a short um, discussions about each type of the primary bone tumor. And honestly speaking, there are only a few primary bone tumors which are particularly high yield for step one exam. This is why we'll spend most of our time in this subsection about those tumors. Before we start discussing each of these primary bone tumors, let's talk about the epidemiology of the primary versus secondary bone tumors. It's worth noting that metastatic or secondary bone tumors are much more common than the primary bone tumors. And uh, now we need to classify the primary bone tumors into the benign tumors and malignant tumors. Let's start with the benign tumors. Uh, well, we have four benign tumors, all of which start with O, and all of which are more common in boys. This is the first mnemonic, which helps, uh, which proves very helpful for me all the time. So I'd like to recommend that you use it also. Benign bone tumors, which start with O, are more common in boys. And these bone tumors are osteochondroma, osteoma, osteoid osteoma, and osteoblastoma. Let's start with osteochondroma. And let's break down the name itself. It's osteochondroma. This is the benign tumor, which consists of the bone and the cartilage, specifically cartilaginous cap. Osteochondroma is the most common benign bone tumor. And again, it's more common in boys. But in this particular example, osteochondroma is more common in males less than 25. It's very, very high yield for us to know the location of the primary bone tumors. I mean, we need to know whether they are in the epiphyses, metaphysis, or diaphysis. Could you please remind me which part of the bone is epiphyses, metaphysis, and diaphysis? That's absolutely true. The part of the bone, the most distal parts of the bone, immediately distal to the growth plate or the physis, is the epiphysis, literally meaning on top of the growth plate. Then metaphysis is the part of the bone immediately above the growth plate or immediately next uh, to the physis. And then diaphysis is this long structure or the bone shaft between the two metaphyses. Osteochondroma usually occurs in the metaphysis of the long bones. And morphologically speaking, osteochondroma has this lateral bony outgrowth or bony projection uh, from the growth plate. And this bony projection is covered by the cartilaginous cap. This morphology is evident on the x-ray as well. If you take an x-ray on the patient with osteochondroma, you will see this lateral bony outgrowth with cartilaginous cap. It's very high yield to remember that this lateral bony outgrowth is the outgrowth from the growth plate. And at the same time, it's continuous with the bone marrow space or the medullary space. Although osteochondroma is a benign tumor in and out of itself, it has a small risk of transforming into the chondrosarcoma. 
Right, let's go to the osteoma. Again, it's more common in males, but it's seen in the middle-aged males. And osteoma is common in the facial bones, the flat facial bones. Osteoma is associated with something called Gardner syndrome. Could you please remind me what the Gardner syndrome is? Absolutely amazing. Gardner syndrome is the subtype of the FAP or familial adenomatous polyposis, which has the extraintestinal manifestations like osteomas on the facial bones, the congenital pigmented retinal epithelium hypertrophy, and also the supernumerary teeth. Okay, now let's move on to the osteoid osteoma. Again, it's more common in males less than 25 years old. Osteoid osteoma occurs in the cortex of the long bone diaphysis. And there is a reason for why this tumor is called osteoid osteoma. So this tumor consists of two layers. The inside central layer is that of the osteoid. Osteoid, as we all know, is the primary initial bone matrix which is still unmineralized. And around that central osteoid core, we have the mineralized bone. Therefore, on the x-ray, you will see the radiolucent core. It's radiolucent or dark because it does not contain calcium. And around that radiolucent osteoid core, you will see the radio pack or the whiter mass, which contains the calcium. Osteoid osteoma presents with bone pain as do almost all the other primary bone tumors and also secondary bone tumors. This bone pain is worse at night, but here are two high yield things to remember about osteoid osteoma. First, the pain of osteoid osteoma is relieved by NSAIDs. And additionally, the bone mass of this tumor uh, sorry, the, the diameter of this tumor is smaller than 2 centimeters. And now you will understand why we are stressing these two points. Let's move on to the osteoblastoma. Osteoblastoma has an almost identical histology and morphology to the osteodosteoma. In other words, it also has the central radiolucent osteoid core surrounded by the peripheral radiopac normal bone. I, I'm saying normal bone, but it's still part of the bone tumor. Osteoblastoma, in contrast to the osteodosteoma, happens in the vertebrae. And additionally, the pain from osteoblastoma is unresponsive to the NSAIDs, and osteoblastoma is large. It's larger than two centimeters. The way I remember this is that osteoblastoma is big, right? B for big, bigger than two centimeters. And then I remember that if osteoblastoma is bigger than osteodosteoma, then pain is more severe and therefore it will be unresponsive to the NSAIDs. I know it's not purely and completely logical, but still it helps me remember these two points. Okay, let's move on to the chondroma. As the name, in, name itself implies, this is the benign tumor of the cartilage because it's chondroma, 
So it's cartilage tumor. Chondroma is common in the medulla or medullary space of the small bones of the hands and feet. This is practically all you need to know about the chondroma. If they test chondroma at all, they test the place or location of chondroma, which is the small bones of the hands and feet. Let's move on to the giant cell tumor. Giant cell tumor is the highest yield tumor from the benign primary bone tumors. It usually occurs in patients from 20 to 40 years old, and giant cell tumor occurs in the epiphyses of the long bones. It is most common in the knee region. But what I want you to remember is that giant cell tumor is practically the only tumor that we need to know for step one that occurs in the epiphyses of the long bones. All the other tumors occur either in the uh, metaphysis, excuse me, or in the diaphysis. Again, giant cell tumor happens in the epiphyses. Although it's a benign tumor, it is still locally aggressive. It destructs and destroys the bone around itself. The giant cell tumor is sometimes known, sometimes called the osteoclastoma because it is the benign tumor of the osteoclasts. Giant cell tumor contains these multinucleated giant cells, which look like the osteoclasts, and it also contains the mononuclear cells, uh, specifically monocytes, which express the rank ligand itself. And it's a very, very high yield fact to remember that the X-ray of the giant cell tumor shows something called soap bubble appearance. I really would like to recommend that you Google the x-ray appearance of the giant cell tumor and you will see there that it truly looks like the soap bubble. There are those radiolucent cystic structures which look like the soap bubble and this is caused by the proliferation of these osteoclast-like cells. Right, we have now discussed the primary bone tumors and let's move on to the malignant bone tumors. Here we will discuss osteosarcoma or osteogenic sarcoma. They are the same. For all intents and purposes, the osteosarcoma is the highest yield primary bone tumor that is tested on the USMLE step one. It's highest yield because it is responsible for 20% of the primary bone cancers. In other words, if you have five patients with primary bone cancers, at least one of them will have osteosarcoma. Osteosarcoma can be primary or secondary. Let's first talk about a primary osteosarcoma. Primary osteosarcoma is more common in males less than 20 years of age. Osteosarcoma can also occur in elderly people, but it's less common in elderly than in younger boys. And there are several predisposing factors which can lead to secondary osteosarcoma. First, patchy disease of the bone is a risk factor for osteosarcoma. We have already mentioned this fact, but it never hurts to review the uh, mentioned facts. Patchy disease of the bone is characterized by overactivity of the osteoblasts in response to the overactive osteoclasts. 
and osteosarcoma is the malignant tumor of the osteoblasts. So if osteoblasts also go crazy and they proliferate like crazy, there is a high chance of malignant transformation leading to osteosarcoma. Bone infarcts can also predispose to the osteosarcoma. So can the radiation. Now, a very high-yield condition associated with osteosarcoma is the familial retinoblastoma. Familial retinoblastoma is the malignant tumor of the retinal cells resulting in leukocoria or the white eye reflex in the children, young children or infants. And the familial or inherited retinoblastoma is caused by mutation in the RB1 gene. This is the gene uh, called retinoblastoma gene. The reason for why patients with familial retinoblastoma are at high risk for developing osteosarcoma in the future is that RB1 gene mutation also increases the risk for osteosarcoma. It can increase the risk for malignant transformation of the osteoblasts. Therefore, if the child has retinoblastoma, then the board question may ask, which of the following tumors is this patient most likely to develop in the future? And the answer for this will be osteosarcoma. And finally, the last secondary cause of the osteosarcoma is another genetic syndrome called Lee-Fraumeni syndrome. Could you please tell me which gene is mutated in Lee-Fraumeni syndrome? You are unbelievable. Exactly, it's P53 gene. The gene for P53 protein is called TP53. And mutation of P53 results in malignant tumors in many organ systems, which is why Lee-Fraumeni syndrome is sometimes called the SBLA cancer syndrome. Each letter in this name stands for the different tumor. S stands for sarcoma, and we have just said that Lee-Fraumeni syndrome can cause osteosarcoma. B stands for breast cancer. L stands for leukemia. And finally, A stands for adrenal tumors. As far as the location goes, the osteosarcoma occurs in the metaphysis of the long bones. And the most common location for osteosarcoma, just like for giant cell tumor, is the knee region. It can happen either in the metaphysis of the femur or in the metaphysis of the tibia. As we already mentioned, the osteosarcoma is the cancer of the osteoblasts. Here we have the pleomorphic or various shaped and various sized um, osteoid producing cells. Osteosarcoma is characterized by severe bone pain and an enlarging mass on the long bone. As a general rule of thumb, almost all primary bone tumors can present with bone pain and pathologic fractures. When we say pathologic fracture, we mean that there is a fracture due to some underlying pathology of bone or the other organ system. There are two very high yield radiographic characteristics of osteosarcoma. Do you know which one they are? Right. Right, it's cognate triangle and sunburst appearance. 
The idea here is that when the mass of osteosarcoma starts to expand, it lifts up the periosteum. The periosteum is the thin layer which uh, tightly surrounds the bones. And normally there is no space between the periosteum and the bone cortex or the cortical bone. But when the osteosarcoma expands as the mass, then there will be a triangle, which is the junction between the elevated periosteum and the cortical bone. That's the Codman triangle. And again, I would like you to recommend that you Google the Codman triangle so that you remember what it looks like. Another radiographic characteristic that we have already mentioned is the sunburst appearance. Sunburst appearance is the presence of the radiopaque bone spicules which are perpendicular to the long axis of the bone. And these bone spicules, which look like the rays of the sun, are actually the masses of the osteosarcoma. Osteosarcoma is a very aggressive tumor, but primary osteosarcoma has a better prognosis because it usually responds to surgery and chemotherapy. The secondary osteosarcoma has a much poorer prognosis. Okay, now that we've talked about osteosarcoma, let's briefly review chondrosarcoma. Chondrosarcoma is another malignant bone tumor. However, it's nowhere as high yield as osteosarcoma. As the name implies, chondrosarcoma is the malignant tumor of the cartilage. In terms of location, it's usually in the medulla of the pelvis or medullary space of the pelvis and also proximal femur or the proximal humerus. That's practically all that you need to know about chondrosarcoma. And the last and final topic, which is another high yield bone tumor, is Ewing sarcoma. Ewing sarcoma is common in white boys less than 15 years old. In contrast to osteosarcoma, which is typically located in the metaphysis of the long bones, the Ewing sarcoma is located in the diaphysis of the long bones. And the most common bone affected in Ewing sarcoma is the femur. Additionally, the Ewing sarcoma can originate from the pelvic flat bones. Now, Ewing sarcoma is the neuroectodermal tumor. Let me repeat that because this is a super high yield fact to know. Ewing sarcoma is a neuroectodermal tumor, which means that these cells comprising the mass of the Ewing sarcoma are of neuroectodermal origin. And if you take biopsy of this Ewing sarcoma, then you will see the anaplastic small blue cells. The word anaplastic means undifferentiated. The small blue cells do not automatically mean Ewing sarcoma in the bone. These small blue cells may also represent the lymphocytes in chronic osteomyelitis. Or even more, these small blue cells may represent the lymphocytes of the metastatic lymphoma, which is, let's say, in the long bone. Now, the question is, how do we differentiate the Ewing sarcoma from chronic osteomyelitis and metastatic lymphoma.
do you know how we can differentiate these conditions? Exactly, by genetic testing. And now if you can tell me the exact mutation, sorry, not mutation, but translocation and the uh, combinant gene characteristic of human sarcoma, you will be a star of today's episode. Yes, you are a star of today's episode. It's the 1122 translocation, which creates the fusion protein EWS-FLI1. If those small blue cells obtained on the biopsy of the bone mass are positive for 1122 translocation, that's Ewing sarcoma. If they are negative for this translocation, then it's either metastatic lymphoma with other characteristic findings of lymphoma or it's chronic osteomyelitis. On the x-ray, Ewing sarcoma typically manifests as the onion skin reaction of the periosteum. The onion skin reaction is not the Ewing sarcoma itself. It's the reaction of the periosteum to the Ewing sarcoma. So onion, uh, onion skin periosteal reaction is when there are the concentric periosteal layers around the Ewing sarcoma. Ewing sarcoma, just like osteosarcoma, is very aggressive tumor with early metastasis. But fortunately, Ewing sarcoma is also responsive to chemotherapy, just like the primary osteosarcoma. Okay, now we've come to an end of our today's episode, and let's summarize everything that we've discussed today. We started this episode by discussing the common pediatric fractures, specifically the green stick fracture and the torus, also known as the buccal fracture. We compared and contrasted these two fractures based on the tension side and compression side. Then we continued by discussing the achondroplasia with associated uh, genetic terms and the concepts. We also talked about osteoporosis and osteopetrosis. We discussed osteomalacian rickets and then we continued with osteitis deformans also known as the Paget disease of the bone. We extensively discussed the different causes of the avascular necrosis of the bone as well. Then we summarized the bone disorders with the lab values, and then we culminated our episode by discussing the primary bone tumors, both benign and malignant tumors. You can leave the voice message on this episode to let us know how we can improve our podcast for you. So thank you for your kind attention to us and see you on the next episode. Thank <laughs> you.